Our Pericope of Scripture is the book of Isaiah, especially chapter 12, but in order to understand chapter 12, which is a song of victory, we need to remember what we've read earlier in chapter 11. So our scripture is Isaiah 11 and 12. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with a rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand Again, the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. And he will set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. They will spoil them the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea and with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river and shall smite it in the seven streams and make men go over dry shod and there shall be an highway for the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria like it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall ye say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name is exalted, sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, 
thou inhabitant of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Our text is chapter 12, verse 1. And in that day, thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Chapter 12 is a song. Chapter 12 is a vow. I will praise thee. It is a victorious song. Because redemption results in praise. Redemption results in praise. Just as the Israelites, when God brought them out of Egypt upon dry ground through the Red Sea, you have the beautiful song of Moses. Redemption results in praise. And so also the, in the future, the people again will praise God for his wonderful redemption. Redemption results in praise. Or if we step into the New Testament, in Luke 18, you have the blind man who is healed. And he following Jesus, we read, he glorified God. And all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise unto God. Redemption results in praise. That redemption is the turning away of God's anger. And in order to understand that song of victory that is sung here, you have to understand Isaiah chapter 11, the first nine verses. Figuratively, not literally, but figuratively, it describes the everlasting, glorious kingdom that comes about through Jesus Christ. For he is that shoot out of the root of Jesse. In other words, chapter 11 is prophetic. Isaiah is able to look forward in the future of the coming of that kingdom in Christ Jesus. Israel represents in that passage the people of the true people of God. Zion stands for God's everlasting covenant of grace. His dwelling with his people. God is in the midst of them, as we read at the end of chapter 12, verse 6. The land of Canaan was a type, a type of the spiritual and everlasting kingdom of peace that Christ inaugurates. And God will gather his people from the Jew and from the Gentile. As we read in chapter 11, there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people. It is the victory of God's people over all their enemies, a song of victory. What a response of God's people to the prophecy of Isaiah 11. A picture of their salvation in the everlasting kingdom of peace. What do they say? I will thank thee, O Jehovah, for thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou hast comforted me. Beloved, those are the words of God's elect church through all generations. His anger turned away, notice with me, the meaning of that phrase. Second of all, the ground for this, how is it possible? And then thirdly, our response. What is God's anger? It is the wrath of God in the past. 
It's a wrath that has revealed itself. It's a wrath that has poured out in suffering and death. For that is the wages of sin, isn't it? Death. That word anger is literally to breathe hard. To breathe hard out of the nostrils. Boys and girls, we're given a picture there. In your minds, perhaps you see a person who's very angry. Hopefully it's not your parents. You see a person who's very angry and their fists are gathered together and their face gets red and vile words come out of their lips. Anger. Look at Esau in Genesis 27. When he found out what his brother Jacob had done and how he had stolen the blessing as well as the birthright, we read there in verse 41, he had a bitter cry, a great and exceeding bitter cry. He's angry. His red face red, ready to slay that brother as soon as his dad would die. It's one thing if a person is angry, but what about an angry God? What about a Pharaoh who hardened his heart, even as God also hardened him, and those terrible plagues upon the land of Egypt, and finally Pharaoh is drowned at the bottom of the Red Sea. And if God does that to a proud military leader like a pharaoh at that time, what about puny, guilty man as he stands before God? As we read in Hebrews 10 verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a terrible thing, a fearful thing. God is angry. But perhaps you ask, isn't it sinful to be angry? And yes, much of our anger as people is sinful anger, isn't it? Anger that comes because we're selfish or because we're proud or because we want our way. But God's anger. God's anger arises out of his attribute of his holiness. In his holiness, there is a hot displeasure of sin. Sin is not just a little displeasure to God, but rebellion and disobedience and pride and selfishness. God hates it. And that anger of God expresses itself in time and eternity. It's not only a fearful thing to fall into the anger of God at the judgment day, but all of our life long. God is angry. His holiness. He hates sin. He's angry against the sinner. Now, I want you to notice one thing very carefully. God's anger is different than that of a man. The anger of a man, yes, arises often because he is selfish or proud or impatient or vindictive. But especially this, the anger of mankind it comes and goes. All of a sudden, a man flies off the handle and then he finally settles down again. And maybe if he takes some classes in anger management, things will go better in his marriage and in his relationship with others. But the anger of God is good. And it is constant. As constant as his holiness. It isn't the case that God flares up in anger and then all of a sudden kind of sets it aside. No, it's constant. 
And it is still there because God doesn't change and his anger against sin and the sinner doesn't change. And who is the object of this anger? Anger? Well, we read here, and this is the elect now, in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee, though thou wast angry with me. Isaiah is picturing there all of God's people throughout history, but especially looking forward. Looking forward to that phrase, in that day. And you'll notice in this song that he uses the singular. In other words, he pictures the elect church of Jesus Christ as one man. And that man knowing God's anger because of his guilt and his sin. So that's anger now that is being related here is not God's anger against the wicked heathens. Assyria, who is coming up against God's people, later on the Babylonians. And it is not even God's anger against the reprobate in Israel. They will be removed. You see, God's anger, it never changes for them. Always. Always he's angry with the wicked in time and in eternity. But here it was against God's Elect Israel. The church pictured as one man. Israel that turned away from the Lord to serve other idols. The church, instead of depending on God for help, looked to Assyria for help. And then to Egypt for help. God's anger against his elect people. Yes, you and I will have to say with this elect group, thou wast angry with me. Because the Old Testament church and the New Testament church are one with the heathen in this land in Adam. All of us have gone astray doing imaginable disobedience and rebellion against God. And now the Old Testament historical reality is the ten tribes drifted away from God and soon would be snuffed out by the Assyrians. And Judah, instead of learning from that, instead of turning from their sins, they continue also in the path of sin and they will be carried away by the Babylonians. In that day, because of their immorality, in that day because of their wicked leaders in their walk of sin. They became just as wicked as Assyria and as Babylon and the Philistines before them. And God's anger also today against his church. His church, which often responds to things in arrogance, the church, of course, has to fight heresy. But how do we do it? Is it by calling people names? Is it by looking down our noses at others? Or how do we deal with the issue of abuse in the church? Do we want to hold their sins of people onto the generations afterwards so that those who have engaged in it are forced to wear the scarlet letter for the rest of their lives? How do we deal with one another when we try to correct one another? Is it always loving, caring for them, seeking their salvation? Or is it by gossiping about them and talking about them and hurting them? God's anger. It's not only God's anger of his church as one, pictured as one man, but it is also God's anger and wrath on individual elect children. The painful experience that we all find in our lives when our sins are not confessed, 
then we feel God's displeasure, don't we? We have a guilty conscience. Go once with David in Psalm 32. What do we read about the child of God when he doesn't confess his sin? We read in Psalm 32, verse 3 and following, When I kept guilty silence, my bones waxed old through their roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Dried up. God's anger against individual elect saints who instead of repenting of their sins and turning from their sins remain obstinately in it for a while. And that is why God's anger is good because it brings chastisement and as we sing with the psalmist, affliction has been for my prophet. Oh, that we may know our sins and God's displeasure against it, his anger against it, so that we turn away from it. But you say, hold on, Pastor, hold on. Yes, God hates the workers of iniquity. God is angry with him in time and eternity. But what about God's sovereign love, his eternal love for the saints? How can you say God is angry with us? God always loves his people. Eternally he loved them and that's why he chose them and he gave them to Jesus Christ to be saved. And that love is everlasting. That love is continuing. That love is immutable because God is immutable. But I want you to notice this tonight as we look at this passage. Anger and love are not incompatible. Anger and love are not incompatible. Hatred and anger are incompatible. But anger and love flow together. Say, huh? You who are married here, you love your spouse. And if your spouse starts flirting with someone else, or has an affair with someone else. As a person who loves your spouse, you are angry with them for betraying that love and that trust between yourselves. Or let me use another illustration for the boys and girls. Your parents love you. They love you. But at times they're going to be angry with you not angry if you make a mistake, that's one thing, but angry if you deliberately disobey them. If they say, clean your room today, and the day goes on and you don't clean your room, stubbornly you say, I don't feel like it. You're going to feel the anger of those loving parents because that kind of disobedience, that rebellion is not okay. They want that changed Anger and love are not incompatible. Let me use one other illustration from nature because God made this whole world in such a way that points to spiritual truths. The sun is always shining. And from that sun, oh, some of you were off on vacation and you basked in that sunlight and that heat. But then those dark, dark clouds came and they covered the sunshine and it was 60 degrees and it was kind of cold there on the beach. The sun was still shining, but you can feel that sunshine, the heat of the sun because of the clouds that got in the way. God always loves us as his children. But when we walk in sin, those are clouds that are going to hide the rays of that God's, God's love and you're going to experience his anger against you. 
chastisement. And yes, the child of God even thanks God for that anger. It's necessary anger because he's a holy God and through his anger then he will chastise us to show us our sins. But now our text. In that day thou wilt say, O Lord, I will praise thee, though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away. Turned away. How is that possible? How is that possible? It's wrath in the past. And I'm going to get into that front phrase yet of our text. In that day, the day of Christ Jesus, but that wrath that was upon us because of our sins, every one of us, was turned away from us. In order to understand that text, think a moment of the weather maps. Think of the different towns and villages where there's a tornado coming through the land and it's coming coming right toward the town and it's sweeping up everything destroying everything in its path and it looks like it's going to come to us and then all of a sudden a wind blows or something else and it suddenly turns away just like the hurricanes that come from the Caribbean Sea and it comes up to the coast of the United States where is it going to land exactly God's wrath is like that tornado or that hurricane in all of its fierceness. It destroys. And now the wonderful gospel, that hurricane, that tornado turned from me. How? Not because God has changed. Not because he's not angry with our sins or the sinner. But rather in his mercy, he has given his son, Jesus Christ. Beloved, God is always angry with sin and the sinner. Let us keep that in mind. Don't say, well, let us sin for grace may abound. God is angry with our sin and punishes that sin. But now it has turned away from his people so that it no longer strikes them dead or destroys them as his anger did to Pharaoh and his host. Or later on Assyria and later on Babylon. How is it possible for God's wrath to be turned away from his people? So that he doesn't have to chastise them any longer, but rather through the confession of their sins, there's relief, there's comfort. We are made righteous in God's sight. How is that possible? What is the ground for this wrath of God turning away from you and from me and from his elect church. There must be a basis for this. For God is holy. God must always punish sin. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. What is the basis for this? And notice I said earlier, it is not the case that God's anger, like the wrath of a man, flares up and then suddenly disappears. It's not the case that God went to some anger management class. God's anger is turned away only in his justice being satisfied. I want you to notice that our text does not say that God's anger disappeared. It is not the case that God's anger died down. It is not the case that God's anger abated. 
like a tornado or a hurricane. No. It's turned away. That tornado turns north or south instead of striking that town. And where did it turn? And that's where chapter 11 comes in. There was a rod, there was a stem that came out of the root of Jesse. His name is the branch. His name is the Messiah, the promised king. In that day, thou shalt say, what day? The day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his incarnation, in his life, in his ministry. It was a life of suffering. It ended with a cross and with death. In that day. That's not just a promise, it's not just a type, but in actuality, God's wrath turned away from his elect church to Christ Jesus. Why? Because his justice was satisfied. As I said, sin and the sinner must be punished with death. But God, God in his mercy gave his own son, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And that son, Jesus Christ, willingly took up his calling as the head, as the representative of his people. In his incarnation, he became one of us. He took on the likeness of our sinful flesh with all of its compromises Weaknesses, sicknesses, pain, hunger. Yet he was without sin. And he took that on in order that he could stand in your and my place as a substitute. No animal that was sacrificed in the Old Testament could take away even one of our sins. No angel from heaven can take away our sins, can stand in our place. Even if there was a godly man without sin, he could never take all the punishment that you and I and all God's saints deserve. God's wrath was poured out, was turned from, Christ to, from us to Christ in our place. Not merely are our sins purged from us, but Christ's perfect righteousness was given to us. That's the way you and I are able to come to God in prayer. That's the way we're able to worship Him. That's the way we're able to live before Him in Christ Jesus. The tornado turned from us to the Lord Jesus Christ in our place. And you and I are born again. You and I in Christ are made new creatures. Now we are righteous because Christ is our head and our representative and he gives us his righteousness. Oh, beloved, there is nothing, there is nothing worse than experiencing God's wrath. And Jesus saw it coming, didn't he? All of his life he saw it coming. He experienced it, especially there in the Garden of Gethsemane when he cries out, is there no other way of salvation? And there was no other way. Jesus experienced that wrath of his Father upon him all of his life, and especially there on the cross. The soul that sinneth, it shall, it must die. And the ground, the basis for God's wrath turned away is found in God's decree of election where he loved us and he gave us to Jesus Christ. And in the way of sin, we discover something more about our God. In the way of sin, we discover his grace undeserved favor. And in the way of our sins, we discover God's mercy. 
He looks at us helpless individuals. There's no way we could save ourselves. There's no way that in ourselves we can produce that perfect righteousness that he demands. And so instead, he gives us his son, Christ Jesus, to suffer the wrath of God for our sins. Oh, do you hear, boys and girls, Jesus as he's hanging there on the cross? experiencing those three hours of darkness, and he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's what God's wrath does. He has to turn away from the sinner. But his wrath is turned away from us to his son, Jesus Christ, so that he can turn to us in all of his love and mercy and kindness. The fury of God for our sins, the fury of God killed Jesus. It drove him into the grave. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Because Jesus Christ is God. There on the third day, he was raised. God raised him for our justification. He arose because he laid down his life and he had the power to take it back up again. And he ascended into heaven. And he is continuing to gather and to build his kingdom. We pray, don't we, in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. And that's what chapter 11 is all about, given in figures, but prophetic. That kingdom of Christ, which is victorious, filling the whole earth. A highway made for Jew and Gentile to fly to Christ Jesus. It is a necessary wrath, necessary because of our sins, because God is holy. But it is also a necessary turning away of that wrath because of his mercy in Christ Jesus. God's love is an eternal love, everlasting love, a continuing love, an immutable love. And so the clouds are taken away in the rays of the sunshine of God's love fall upon us in Christ. Our text, I will praise thee, though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. I think I probably used this passage different times in the first Lord's Day of the Catechism, because the whole Catechism idea is about comfort. What is your only comfort in life and death that I'm not my own? But I belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm his. We belong to him. What is our comfort? Though our sins are so many in number and so vile and ugly, they've been washed away. They've been blotted out of God's book of remembrance, never to be held against us again. The Holy Spirit works in our hearts sorrow for those sins, a sorrow that leads to repentance. As we read in Ezekiel chapter 33, God delights not in the death of the wicked, but that he turn, that he turn from his sins and live. And beloved, in the way of confessing our sins and repenting, God forgives us. There are those who mistakenly say today that God has forgiven us eternally. There was a young man in the Philippines. He walked he was a godly man earlier, but he walked in terrible sins. Forsook his wife, his child, to look at other skirts. He came back to the church. But he does not apologize to his former wife or to his daughter for what he has done. He says, I don't have to. I don't have to because there is this preacher over in Michigan who preaches that we are eternally forgiven, and if I'm eternally forgiven, I don't have to confess any sins anymore. 
in the way of godly sorrow worked by the Holy Spirit in our hearts, confessing our sins, comes the experience, the assurance that those sins are blotted out, are forgiven us. That's comfort to sinners like you and me. Not only are we forgiven, but we are made righteous in Christ Jesus. And therefore, we have the hope of eternal life. What bliss. That kingdom, that kingdom that's being gathered, is being built, and is going to be completely realized, perfected, when Jesus comes again. What do we call this anger of God that we experience in our lives a momentary anger. Let me quote from Isaiah 54, verses 7 and 8. I think I've preached that passage here already. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. Yes, do you catch the picture? That sunshine shining, that dark cloud comes there for a while, and you just say, come on, pass on, it's getting kind of cold, I want that sunshine. And then the pa cloud passes away, and ah, the light and the heat of the sun. The same with God's love. The way of our sins, we are going to experience God's anger with us so that he'll chastise his children until they repent with godly sorrow, not just worried about the consequences, but because they've sinned against God. They're sorry for it. They confess their sins. They are forgiven and declared righteous in Jesus Christ. Yes, that's the reason for this song of victory, isn't it? Redemption produces praise. That redemption now already in principle, but one day in that day, totally. And that brings me to my third point, doesn't it? Our response, you've heard me say it before in this sermon, redemption produces praise. In that day, that phrase in verse 1 there is the same day that we read about in chapter 11, the day of salvation in the new dispensation. It's the day of the Lord when the kingdom of God is consummated in all of its beauty and finality. Jews and Gentiles saved and gathered into the kingdom from the four corners of the world. In that day, when Christ is making up his kingdom, that is, from the day of his incarnation until his coming again, in that day, God's elect people will give thanks. They will praise his name. They will praise his works. Not just with the lips speaking. Lips sing this song of victory because the heart, the heart is full and overflowing of God's goodness. Through the work of Christ Jesus, God's people are freed from all of their wickedness. He has separated us from the wickedness of the world who continue in their sin, and God's wrath continues on them into eternity. God has separated us out, and he gave us to Jesus Christ who bore the guilt of all of our sins and took it away through his death. He removed the liability of us for judgment and punishment, both temporal and eternal. That is the just wrath of God that we deserved 
and his wrath was turned away to Christ. So I want you to notice from our text, finally, the vow. In that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. I will praise thee. The world outside of Christ Jesus is always the object of his wrath. Whether it be wicked and unrepentant Israel or today the wicked reprobate world. God's wrath is not turned away from them, but it will follow them all the days of their life and into eternity. That's a scary thing, isn't it? It's an awful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. But we have been separated. Our tie to this guilty world has been broken. And you and I are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, made righteous in God's eyes, not worthy of his anger any longer, but of his eternal love. And united to Christ Jesus with a true faith, we say, I will praise thee. Praise, boys and girls, means to put out the hand. It means to point out something. And that's what our calling is every day. I will praise thee. I'm going to point out what a sinner I was and how it is God in Christ Jesus that has taken all of my sins away, punished it on his son, and he loves me. I'm going to point out to the deeds and the blessings of Jehovah God, and I'm going to thank him for all those blessings of salvation. Aren't you grateful, thankful, that God did not leave us in our sins, but graciously redeemed us? Yes, that produces praise. We are God's people, redeemed from sin, ready to serve God in gratitude. And then we call attention to every aspect of that salvation. Just as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 15, verse 6, that she may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, in, Psalm, in Isaiah 6, 12 here, the whole redeemed church is pictured as one man. And now, with one mouth, with one mind, we glorify God, the Father of Jesus Christ. Comfort, thou dost comfort me. Comfort means the enjoyment of the greatest good over against the most conceivable evil. It begins with God's anger. We deserved it. But praise the Lord, it was turned away to Christ. And now you and I enjoy God's love, God's forgiveness, God's daily blessing. I talked to a young person that was very despondent, depressed. Through different trials in that person's life, they came to see their sins. Sad to say all they could see their sins. And they were so afraid that of them it would be said, I never knew you. But instead of keeping our eyes on our navels, looking at our sins, take your eyes away to where your finger points to God in Christ Jesus. He died. He took away our sin and our guilt. And we experience God's love and favor and life. How wonderful. Daily blessings. And so the song continues, doesn't it? God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. With joy, draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day, ye shall say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings, make mention that his name is exalted, sing unto the Lord, cry out and shout. 
Won't you agree with me as we find in Romans 8, verse 18? The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. We have that now already in beginning or in principle, but presently forever in perfection. In that day when Jesus comes again, we're going to sing. For redemption produces praise, a victorious song of praise to our God. Amen. Words fail us, Father, for what thou hast done for us. Hard for us to imagine all the sins of all thy elect people, all of their lives through all generations resting there upon the shoulders of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he poured out his life willingly for us. What a Savior. We thank thee that in Christ Jesus, we don't have to be afraid of our God, but we can sing with gladness, for he's for us. He loves us. We are the apple of his eye, and he will continue to preserve his saints. Hear now our prayer, accept our thanks, and Lord, cause us to go forth from this place skipping like a calf, full of joy, a life ready to serve thee each day. Amen.